Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. I bent down and fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king, because they refused to return to me. The sword will whirl against their cities, and will demolish their gate bars, and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me, though they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, He will roar. And His sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. Ephraim surrounds me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. God, we believe You to be faithful. Jesus, we know this to be true. And we pray this morning again that You will just speak Your heart to us. May we this morning have a heart-to-heart conversation with You. And may we in our hearts hear Yours, Father, by Your Holy Spirit. And through Your Word we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Hosea was not what I expected. It is a heartbreaking story throughout. It's among the most peculiar love stories in all of history, really. It's the prophet who married the harlot, as we've talked about. The harlot who played him for a fool and left him. And the prophet who pursued her, purchased her, you could say redeemed her, and brought her home. And Hosea's part of the story really ends, his narrative ends in chapter 3, and then we get on into God's relationship with Israel with that as the backdrop, with that as the picture. Hosea chapter 3 verse 2 says, I bought her for myself, Hosea writes, for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. And so I will also be toward you. But that's where Hosea's personal life story ends. And we don't know what happened after that. I hate that. I can't even turn to the last page of Hosea's life and see, did did Gomer stay? Did she stick with him after this? After he went and got her and brought her back the second time? Did, did she stay with him? Was she unfaithful again? Did she ever fall in love with the man? We don't know. We don't know. But it is a truly heartbreaking story. And that's the point. Here a week or so out from my daughter's wedding, I need to tell you that love is heartbreaking. How pessimistic. 
<laughs> Love is heartbreaking. But what we need to understand is the reason we have books like Hosea and Ruth and the Song of Songs in the Bible is because God would have us understand that He is not only a God of love, but that His heart breaks for the sinner. You want to talk about a broken heart, look at the heart of God. And what the world today does not seem to get, does not understand, is there is a Father who loves them, who is heartbroken over all of us who have not turned to Him. He loves deeply. You know the verse. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Wait a minute. Does, does God's heart really break? Hey, the bigger the heart, the bigger the break. The greater the heart, the greater the potential pain. I wonder sometimes, and it's pretty remarkable in the context of God and of eternity, why it is that we as human beings created in His image somehow think we have the market on love and heartache. Like He can't possibly understand when my heart's broken. You know, or he, he loves in a different way, a kind of a God religion kind of a love, but, but our love down here is different. He doesn't understand I have needs. He doesn't get in his word clearly that I have certain feelings I have to act on because it's love, man, it's love. And we miss the fact that he is the God of love. Turning your Bibles over to first John chapter four. First John chapter four. Go-to passage when you're talking about the love of God. But listen to these words, perhaps for the first time, or fresh and new again if you have read this. 1 John chapter 4, beginning about verse 7. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. You know what that tells us? That tells us that if you're not born of God, if you don't know God, you don't know love. You really don't. You may think you do, but it's not fully understood until you know God, until you are born of God. Verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, seen in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the complete cleansing for our sins. Skip down to verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. By this, love is perfected with us. So that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. That's huge. That means as you come into a relationship with God, that you begin then to act like, to love like God in this world. As He is, so are we in this world. Lovers in the way God is a lover, not in the way the world describes or defines love. Understand what John is saying here, and you can go back to Hosea. 
What John is saying here is that God defines love for us by His very nature and not the other way around. And the world flips it over upside down. As our Chinese brother Johan has said, God is love. Love is not God. And when we get that backwards, we enter what I would call depravity. When we make love our God, rather than God our God who is love, God defines love. Love does not define God. I had to think twice before before writing that down and, and saying that, but it's true. Love doesn't define God. God defines love. Everything we can, everything that we would know about love is defined in the person of God. In the nature, in the character of who He is, He is love. Therefore, He defines love and not the other way around. I want to consider that and maintain that throughout the book of Hosea. You know, we leave chapter 3 and you might be tempted to get into theology and to get into the, you know, the, the interworkings of God and Israel and the history and their treachery and all of that. And we've talked about some of those things, but that's not the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to consider His love and our response to it. That's why Hosea is here. And I keep coming back to this again and again. And what you may find surprising here in chapter 11 is how transparent God is. How vulnerable His heart. How how really, it's it's just stunning. The poignancy of God, the eternal Creator over all things, expressing His broken heart which we would think of as a sign of weakness, though it's not. Our vulnerable, transparent God. Five things to note in this passage. Number one, note God's tenderness. God's tenderness as it opens up in verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Now I can relate to that. I took David for donuts the other day. (laughs) Yesterday. Don't tell anybody who thinks that I'm eating healthy now. We go down to the donut master after we'd had fast food. And um, <laughs> it was just the two of us. You know, everybody else was doing things. It was crazy. It was wild. David's, you know, sitting there with, you know, just playing video games. And, and I'm like, I got to get him out of this. So we head down there. I, I think I just told three major sins of a parent right there. <laughs> All at once. So we go down to the donut master and we sit down together to, to eat the donuts. And David, he's just wide-eyed and he's so excited. And he just goes... Dad, I've never been in the Donut Master before. <laughs> it's just, and I'm like, I know, son, right? Oh. It was like we had just found the Holy Grail. It was incredible. And he says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. I know what that feels like. I adore that little guy. I absolutely love him. And you need to understand the feelings that God is expressing, tender feelings out of Egypt, he says. I called my son. He had tender feelings for Israel over 900 years earlier, and he still recalls that. As any, you know, parent would. You still recall all the things way back when? I adore my little boy, David, at the age of six. I adore my daughter, Hannah, at the age of 21. I adore my son, Corey, at the age of 24 almost. 24 this next month. And I can look back 24 years and I have a tenderness in my heart for my oldest son, my oldest daughter, that is exactly the same as the tenderness I have for my little boy, David. 
And God has this feeling. He expresses it. It's been 900 years, yet He still remembers, recalls the tender love of a father who loves His Son and called Him out of Egypt. You Bible students know He delivered them from Egypt. And yet in this is a stunning, surprising prophecy. It's not just a history. It's not just the fact that here the Lord is saying, I delivered you all out of Egypt. I called you out of Egypt. He did. He called the children of Israel out of Egypt. But that was days past. In days future, seven centuries later, He would call His own Son, Jesus, out of Egypt. And we know this is prophecy. We know it was fulfilled. And I love those little inserted prophecies. And this is, by the way, not guesswork. You might read that and go, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, I guess you could apply that to Jesus. But is that actually a prophecy? Listen, before Herod could launch his infamous infanticide, the slaughter of all the toddler boys of Israel, two years old and under, an angel of the Lord got to Joseph and told him to take Mary and the child and get out and go to Egypt. And Matthew chapter 2, verse 14 tells us, Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. The Lord says it, the Lord does it, and the Lord tells us that He did what He said. And that's prophecy. Herod, Satan, really wanted to stop the birth of Messiah. Cut him off before he could come into the world. And instead, what ended up happening is Satan played right into Bible prophecy. He always does. He thinks, oh, I've got him this time. And God's like, yeah, whatever. I've already seen what you're doing. And I've got the trump. And I will do this. Out of Egypt I called my son. But look at verse 2. The more they called them, the more they went from them. Who are they? The prophets. The more the prophets called the people, the more the people went away from the prophets. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, note that, and bonds of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. I bent down and fed them. The picture here is the tenderness of a father with a child. Teaching him how to walk. Taking care of his food needs. And think about this. The more they called them, the more they went from them. Is that not typical of toddlers? As Bill Cosby said, this was years ago in, in the Bill Cosby himself, some, many of you have seen that, where he's talking about his own kids and what, he, what parents tend to say and repeat themselves, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here, 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 here. You know, that's, that's what happens. The kids, they wander off and God says, yeah, that's what, that's what Israel did. The more I called, the more they ran the opposite way. And he says, I'm the one who taught them how to walk. I'm the one who gave them legs. And they use those silly little spindly legs to walk away. Clark says this is a reference, by the way, to leading strings. When he says, I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. Think about the tenderness of that picture. This is a reference to leading strings, one end of which is held by a child, the other which is held by the parent by which the little one, feeling some support and gaining confidence, endeavors to walk. You got the picture? The 
child has one end of the cord, the parent has the other end, and the parent is doing this. Drawing the child closer and closer. Jesus said in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And gang, that is not coercive. It is not a forceful leading. God is not manipulative. You know, for those who would fear going to church that they might be manipulated into something, I'll tell you what, if you're ever manipulated at church, it is not of God. It's of man. That's what cults do. It's try to force attendance, try and drive people into that place. Use a little bit of guilt, you know, to keep people doing what they need to do. And God says, I'm just going to draw you tenderly. You can let go of that cord any time. But I want you near to me, so I'm going to draw with tenderness. These are not, by the way, divine cords. They are cords of a man. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us God knows His own strength. If He drew us with divine cords, it would wipe us out. You don't teach a child to walk by giving them one end of a rope and tying the other onto a bumper of a Chevy 4x4. (laughs) Not a good idea. In fact, it's really a drag. (laughs) And that is just a picture of what, if God drew us by His power, if He used His divinity to draw us, He could do that. He asked this morning, he could do it right now. He could look at every straying heart and go, that's it, boom, and we would be his, shaking and trembling without any free will whatsoever. That's not how it works. He draws us with cords of a man. What does that mean? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 tells us God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets through men. He used the voices of men to draw his people to him. He didn't show up and scare them to death. He spoke to them through the cords of a man. He spoke to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. And in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. The cords of a man. He drew us by becoming a man and walking among us. How tender is that? How gentle the drawing of the Lord. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling Calling, O sinner, come home. By the way, as He draws us when we fall down, guess what He does? He heals us. They did not know, verse 3 tells us, that I healed them. Now, I knew when I was a kid that my mom had healed me. We had Bactine. Yeah, right? I hated that stuff. You scrape your knee, I'll get the Bactine. No, Mom! Just let me bleed, you know? And she squirted that stuff on there, and at first, oh, it was horrible. It just stung. I don't know if Bactine still stings. I refuse to have it in my house. I'm a little marred that way. I'd rather, if David falls down and skins his knee, to go to the donut master. But... Bactine stings, and you know that you're being healed. Here's how tender God is. You don't know you're being healed. You don't even know the healing's going on in your heart, and He's doing it. Remarkable. Isaiah 53, verse 5 tells us, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. We don't know we're being healed, but He knows. I may not feel it, but He does, and He did. Jeremiah 17.14, as we sang earlier, Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for You are my praise. But Israel didn't praise God for their healing. 
They didn't even know he was the one doing it. Such was, second point, Israel's treachery. We go from God's tenderness now to Israel's treachery. Verse 5, They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king, because they refused to return to me. That's amazing in and of itself. They had the right of refusal, gang. They could refuse. People still can refuse. The sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsel. See, they're wrapped up in their own thinking. They're not in the counsel of the Lord. They're in the counsel of man. So my people are bent on turning from me, though they call them to the one on high. That is, again, the prophets calling the people. None at all exalts him. Literally, that verse is, though they call to him on high, together they exalted not. As a people, they refuse to exalt. You know what's going on here? It's prayer without praise. It's supplication without exaltation. In essence, and this is the way so many outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, this is how mankind approaches God. It's wishing without worship. Oh, I'm praying all that. Would you pray for me? I'm praying every day that this will go away. But there's no relationship there. And God says, you're calling out to me, but you're not worshiping me. You're praying to me, but you refuse to exalt me. That is the request of blessing while rejecting authority. I want what you have, God. I just don't want to thank you for it. I just don't want to honor you for it. And it's treachery. And we see this all the time in our world. People wanting what God can give, but they just don't want God. It's Gomer. It's Gomer. Home long enough to pull herself together, have a hot meal, maybe sleep in in a comfortable bed for a night and get some shelter. But ultimately, she rejects Hosea's offer of love and she's out the door again. He has to go back and get her and bring her back. It's treachery. A good marriage truly requires submission both ways. Gentlemen, ladies, submission is the key to a good marriage. Submission first to Jesus Christ and then to your spouse. Because without that submissive spirit, you will be head to head constantly. And some are. Paul, writing Ephesians chapter 5, says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wives, do you get that? Be subject as to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's huge. I like to remind Cheryl of that all the time. (laughs) As you are to Him. (laughs) And then she likes to remind me, husbands, (laughs) Ephesians 5.25, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Thank you very much. Submission. First he says, man, wives, you got to do this. And then he says, and husbands, you got to do this. And later on, as you know, down at the end of the chapter, Ephesians chapter 5, he says, I'm talking about Christ in the church. That's, that's the description here. So wives, love your husbands. He's talking to the church. We need to love our husband. We need to adore him. We need to exalt him. Anything else is treachery. Now, some might say, well, if, if a good marriage is submission both ways, and we are the wife who has to adore and submit to the husband, when does God ever submit to us? <laughs> First of all, I'm going to move back and give a little room for the lightning strike. You know? <laughs> but I have had that conversation. What has God ever done for me? When has God bent the knee for me? 
Why do I have to worship Him? Gang. He took them in His arms. He led them with cords of a man. With bonds of love, He bent down, the Bible tells us, and fed them. And if that wasn't enough, Philippians 2.8 says, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Guess what? God submitted to man. He submitted Himself to you and to me for salvation. Yes, He did. Because marriage, it works both ways and He shows us that. He bent down to lead, to feed, to to heal, to free up, and ultimately to die in my place and in yours. And in light of all that God has done for Israel and for all of us, it makes sense that my treachery would break His heart. We see how personal this is? It's not some ancient, distant religious story that God's heart is broken because Israel is just treacherous toward Him. Number three, God's torment. God's torment. Verse 8, He says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Does that not sound like a husband in torment over his unfaithful wife? (coughs) Angry that she's left. Angry that she's off with someone else. And yet at the same time going, but I can't leave her. I can't lose her. Or the other way around. The wife whose husband's messing around and she said, "I, I can't stand that he's doing this, but I can't lose him. See, that's how God feels. That's a tormented heart. He doesn't want to destroy them like Adma and like Zeboim. Well, who are they? Turn in your Bibles back to Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29, verse 22. He says, Now the generation to come, your sons who rise up after you, And the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it, will say, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown, unproductive, and no grass grows in it. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in His anger and in His wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? And then men will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods with whom they have not known and whom He had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is to this day. So Moses predicted, prophesied, this is what's going to happen. And here God is on the eve of that. The eve of that casting out. The tormented husband saying, how can I give you up? How can I surrender? How can I make you like Adma and Zeboim? And yet your choices are wiping you out. And yet that's right where you're headed. 
And you hear anguish in the heart of God, anguish in His voice as He cries out and describes a desolate land. And I've read this before, i got to read it to you again. In the book Innocence Abroad, written by Mark Twain, when he went to Israel to check it out, see the Holy Land, this is what he wrote. It was a desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds. A silent, mournful expanse, a desolation. We never saw a human being on the whole route. Hardly a tree or shrub anywhere. Even the olive tree and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. Complete desolation. And there are some people who go, well, I don't want to go to Israel now because you know that's what I hear. It's nothing like that right now. It's unbelievably different. It's green, it's lush, it's beautiful. It is undergoing a radical healing by the hand of the power of God right now. For the late 1800s, when Mark Twain went there, it was trashed. It was desolate. And the desolation and the desertion of the land of Israel caused the Lord intense torment of heart. That's the other side of the coin. You can look at Israel and say they have been a tormented people for 2,000 years, and they have. They have been a people cast out, a people dispersed, a people in anguish, a people who have been, and as we talk about, anti-Semitism again is flaring up all over the world. Why this people always under the gun? But the other side of that equation is God's broken heart for His people Israel. God's anguish, God's torment over the fact that they were cast out. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want the divorce, if you will. And even the moment it happened, he was seeking, talking, looking forward to restoration. Because that's his love. Verse 8, continuing on, he says, My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. Think about that physically if your heart were to turn over. (laughs) What does he mean? My heart is aching. My heart is in pain. My compassion, my desire, my love for you, it's kindled, it's lit up. Verse 9, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. Keyword. Because he did destroy them once. But he's not going to do it again. I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. My friends, Jesus didn't. When God visited the land, when God came, He did not come in wrath. He came in peace. He was born a little baby. You know, in a manger. Not mounted on a great seed in in a terrific rage. Not coming to do war. But Rick, I've read Revelation. And I know in His second coming, He does come in a rage. He does come in anger. He does come fierce. He does come to make war. Yeah, that's true. The Bible says that. Just wait for the book of Joel. But that wrath, gang, is not against Israel in His second coming. That wrath is against the Christ-rejecting world. The wrath that He pours out is not a wrath for Israel. As a matter of fact, in the middle of that outpouring of His wrath, soon to come, He rescues Israel. He pulls them out. He sends them to a safe place in the wilderness. That remnant of Israel who will fall in love with Jesus Christ will be saved by the hand of the Father even as His wrath is pouring out. And in that rescue, Israel will come, number four, trembling. Israel's trembling 
Verse 10, they will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, I suggest, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Indeed, he will roar and his sons will come trembling from the west. And they will come trembling like birds from Egypt. And like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. Note that they come from the west, they come from Egypt, that's the south, and they come from Assyria, which is the north and the east. What are we seeing here? North, south, east, and west. They will come. And they will come trembling like birds, like doves, in the great and final regathering of Israel to the land. This is great prophecy here. Psalm 2.11 says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. And Israel, better than any other, will know the fear of the Lord, will know the awe of their Father, will know the adoration of Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us, Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced, Jesus says. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, the only begotten son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Matthew 24.30, Jesus said the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Israel will come trembling back before the Father. Truly all the earth will tremble at His coming. It's a study in contrast. You read down this far. And we get the contrast. On the one hand, God's tenderness. On the other hand, Israel's treachery. On the other hand, God's torment. On the other hand, their trembling. And in this, we begin to see a difference between His ways and our ways. His ways of tenderness. And the torment of His heart over one lost sinner. Our ways of treachery. And ultimately, trembling before Him. There's a difference between His love and our love. Between the way we do relationships and the way our God does relationships. And so one more thing to note here, a final distinction. Verse 12. Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God. So he's covering the whole people of Israel. Note that. Israel, the house of Israel, Judah, Ephraim, everybody. Even against the Holy One who, note this, is faithful. He's the one who's faithful. He's always the one who's faithful. He's never unfaithful. He can't be unfaithful. It's not in His nature. If we are faithless, 2 Timothy 2.13, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. He can't help it. You realize that? Faithfulness is just the way He is. It's in His DNA. God's DNA, yeah. His divine nature and awesomeness. <laughs> it's, it's His character. But what is most remarkable to me in verse 12 is that God declared His faithfulness while surrounded by Ephraim's lies. 
In the face of Israel's unfaithfulness, God is declaring His faithfulness to an unfaithful people. To a harlotrous people. And gang, that is not just faithfulness. That is God's defined love. That's God showing us what love is. God demonstrates His own love toward us in this, Paul writes, Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That He remains faithful even if I am faithless. But don't misunderstand love. Because I think we can right here in God's amazing faithfulness in the midst of our sin. Sometimes people will look at that and they will think, okay, uh, then, then I got a little freedom to wiggle here because He's going to remain faithful anyway. Love does not define God. God defines love. Let me ask you this question. Is the divine husband okay with a devious wife? Is that alright? That she's out of whoring? Fine. Go ahead. I'll be here, honey, when you get home. You know, does he look the other way? Does he lower his standards? Hosea chapter 3, verse 3, you shall not play the harlot. Hosea says to his wife after he's brought her home, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be toward you. When Hosea brings Gomer home, he says to her, this is it. You are not to do this anymore. It's not okay. I love you. I want you. I am faithful to you. I will be faithful to you. But now that I've brought you in, brought you home, no more of this. And that's what Christians often miss with God the Father. He brings us home and we go, I'm just going to be out tonight. It's not like God sitting there going, well, I know she's out most nights, but at least I can have her on Sundays. That's not love. That's not the expectation of God. If when I know God's faithfulness, I still choose to sin against Him, I am still a harlot. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. Paul says, You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Not therefore, do whatever you want. No big deal. You're covered. No. Glorify God in your body. On the cross, Jesus paid the highest price of redemption, but not so we could keep on sinning. On the cross, He took all the punishment of sin. He didn't offer the approval of it. The cross is not God saying, again, I know she works nights. But if I can get her in here on a Wednesday from time to time, that's cool. Love is not God. God is love. And Hosea is a heartbreaking story. And that's the point. That's the idea. Love is heartbreaking. That's why the prophecy is here, my friends, to break the heart of stone. God would break our hearts. Cut away, excise the fat around our hearts that is all the buildup of years of of false lies, of years of idolatry, of years of not knowing truth. God would take all of that away, break the heart of stone. He is determined to do so. And He will do it in your life, whatever it takes to bust up that cold, callous outer shell so He can reach into a person He dearly loves. God is a heartbreaker. Not like we are heartbreakers. We break His heart with sorrow. He breaks our hearts to get in and save our lives because He loves us so dearly. 
He said through Ezekiel the prophet, you may recall this, Ezekiel 36, 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. That's what happens when you're born again. New heart. The old, you get a heart transplant. A new heart from God, a spiritual heart. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh that's soft, that's beating. Gang, love is heartbreaking. Now, I made a promise on Wednesday night that we would cover verse 12 in chapter 10, which we really didn't cover. Go back there, because in verse 12 of the previous chapter, what we have is a prescription for softening the heart. For softening hearts and for keeping them soft. Here's, here's what the Lord would say to you, would say to me, verse 12, Hosea 10, So, with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. Four things there. Three or four. Number one, sow with a view to righteousness. Absolutely key if you want to maintain a soft heart as a follower of Jesus Christ. So, with a view to righteousness. What does that mean? Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Jesus says, Luke 9, 62, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Sow with a view to righteousness. It means you sow forward. It means you plant forward. It means you don't go back to where you were. It means you go forward to where He is. You have righteousness. You have holiness in view. You're looking to these things, not those. Not the old ways, but the new way in Christ Jesus. A desire. Righteousness, it just means being right with God. It doesn't mean being the most religious person in the barn doesn't mean having the nicest suit and sitting in the best seat and looking the most untouched by the world. It means being right with God in spirit, in heart, in relationship. So with a view to rightness with God. We were at Whitworth University's graduation last week. And the baccalaureate service was great. I really enjoyed it. I think more than the graduation because, you know, you can only stand so much. Da, 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 da. <laughs> How many people? 601, 602. Scott Donald's over the left playing graduation bingo, you know. <laughs> with the names. Anyway. They have a saying there, and it's the school motto. And I actually really like it. Honor God, follow Christ, serve humanity. Good deal. Honor God, follow Christ, serve humanity. But what happens when we get those backwards? which I think has happened quite a bit today. Serve humanity! Follow Christ. Honor God if there's time. But when we make the serving of humanity number one on the list, we're not sowing with a view to righteousness. We're sowing with a view to sin. When humanity is number one on the list. Let God put humanity high on His list. I'm not, now please don't misunderstand me. Because if we are in God, and if we love like God loves, then we're going to love humanity. It's a natural thing. We're going to care about this lost world. We're going to care about people who don't know Jesus. I'm not saying don't love. I'm saying let the love of God flow through you. But you sow with a view to righteousness. You don't undermine the honor of God in your life. Well, I can't honor God and love this person over here. Yes, you can. You honor Him first. And in honoring Him, you will love them in the way that He loves, not in the way that you think you should love. 
You see what the problem is here? The church in this generation gets it backwards, so intent on serving humanity that the honor of God becomes third place. What is in your view? So with a view to righteousness. Proverbs 11.18 tells us the wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. And that's the second thing. Reap in accordance with kindness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Guess what? That's what you get. It's not what you do. You reap in accordance with kindness. The word kindness there is that Hebrew word, chesed. Reap grace. What's he saying? So, with a view to righteousness, reap grace. You go forward. You look to the Lord. You seek to be right with Him. And He pours out His grace. Reap in accordance with grace. It's not our own grace that we're reaping. It's His. That's the true reward. His unearned, unmerited favor. John writes in John 1.16, For of His fullness, the fullness of Jesus, we have all received, and grace upon grace. He's talking about an inexhaustible supply. There's more grace than you can possibly need in your life. More grace available. Which I need because sometimes even when I'm sowing with a view to righteousness, sometimes I sow in bad seed. Sometimes even in all my desire, all my intent on being where He is and looking to where He is, uh, I can get off of the furrow. Even if I'm not off of the furrow, I can sow in bad seed. Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so we're not talking about, you know, you got to do the righteous thing and then He'll give you grace. No, we're t- it's not earned income credit. It's the soft heart of the born again who just keep their eyes on Jesus. And when we step out of line, when we sow sin, when we fail, when we fall down, with cords of a man, He picks us up and He continues to draw us to Him. He continues to lead us home. Break up your fallow ground. That's the third thing in this verse. Break up your fallow ground. Ground untouched over a long period of time, usually they say a year or more, is considered fallow. Jesus says, break it up. Break it up. Keep the soil soft. Keep the heart soft. It's not hard to do, really. To stay in the Word. If you remain faithful in prayer, if you just walk with Him day by day. The reason why we encourage people to be here... In fact, here's my my dream for this fellowship. Ready? Are you ready for it? Every Sunday morning, you're worshiping and loving the Lord. Every Wednesday night, you're here worshiping and you're in the Word. And another night during the week, you're in a small group and the rest of the time you're sharing Jesus with your friends and family. That's, That's beautiful. You might say, oh, okay, so you want us to check the attendance box? No, I really don't. I want you to break up the fallow ground. And the only way to break up the fallow ground is to continually keep it tilled. You keep it tilled by being in the Word. You keep it tilled as you are in worship. You keep it tilled as you're with other believers in fellowship and proclaiming the Gospel. You break up fallow ground. Proverbs 13, verse 22 tells us, or 23, tells us abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor but it is swept away by injustice. What the writer is saying is the food's there. The availability 
The love of God to break in and to fill and to, 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 to seed that, that well-tilled soil. It's right there, but it's swept away by injustice. The word injustice, dang, it means lack of judgment. We show lack of judgment when we deny ourselves the opportunity to be in His Word, to be in prayer, to be with the Lord. And the heart starts to harden. You know, that's what we naturally do. We naturally tend to harden over time. You want to try it out? You can. Take the next year off of church. I'm not suggesting this, but if you just want proof as to how a heart hardens, take a year off and see what happens. Go pray. Put your Bible on a shelf and leave it there. Give it a year. And you will have a harder heart in a year than you have today. He says, break it up, man. Break the heart. Seed is good. But the heart has to be broken up and well tilled to remain rich and soft and ready to receive. Jesus said in Matthew 13.22, The one on whom the seed of the word was sown among thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the world, and it becomes unfruitful. He gives all those examples, and then he comes down to the one who receives the word, the good soil. That's the soft heart. And as the Word comes into that heart, you remain soft. In fact, you get softer toward the Lord and you recognize all these things we're talking about this morning. His tenderness. His compassions for you. And then finally, seek the Lord until He comes. It is time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness upon you. Seek the Lord until He comes. Who here honestly believe that the day is coming fast? The until in Hosea 10 verse 12 is, I think, perhaps, it's right up there with one of the best words in the entire book. Until. The until is absolutely critical to maintaining the soft heart. Because the surest way to harden your heart, as I've already described, is to put off Jesus. Put Him off for a season. Put Him off for a few seasons. And the longer you put off Jesus, the harder the heart gets Put off His coming. Oh, it won't be now. It can't be in my lifetime. Put it off. And your heart gets a little harder. Put off His love. Distance yourself from the one who loves you most. But if you want a soft heart, you sow with a view to righteousness. You you reap in accordance with His grace. You break up the fallow ground and you seek the Lord until He comes. You keep looking for Him. You wake up every morning wondering, is this the day? Is it now? 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. What are we going to be when we're grown up? We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And John writes, and it's critical to note, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. There are honestly, just, there are honestly certain things I cannot do if the word until is in my mind. There are movies I can't watch if he might show up halfway through. There are books I cannot read if while I'm reading I know he's going to pop in. There are behaviors, there are places I won't go. I can go on and on. You all know the sin, the lures in your personal life. There are things I will not do if the thought creeps in, he could come now. Is this what I want to be doing when Jesus shows up? Well, why, Rick? Will He throw you straight into hell? No, I don't believe so, because I'm reaping in accordance with grace. 
And yet, do I want Him to find me in the midst of careless living? Love is heartbreaking. And it's what we need. Until He comes to rain righteousness on you. Psalm 72 verse 6 says, May He come down like rain upon the mown grass and like showers that water the earth in His days. May the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. Amen. If while we pray... your heart is broken this morning because perhaps you've been hardened toward the Lord. If you hear the voice of Yeshua calling you home, I would invite you just to quietly make your way up to the front row and have a seat. Whatever your need, please come. And Father, we pray this morning to a Lord who loves us dearly. And this is not wishful thinking. It's what You have declared. It's what You have shown us time and time again. And I pray, Father, for this grace. Over the bridge is a church fellowship that we will be a people with soft hearts. Thick skin because the world is throwing daggers and the enemy is firing off his fiery darts. But may our hearts remain softer and softer until you come. Open to you, ready to receive, longing for you. You told us in your word, Lord, that Israel was an example for us. That all these things that happened to them were so that we could see and learn and understand. But Father, not just how we are to respond, we can understand Your heart. Lord, this morning we exalt You for being love. We exalt and praise You for Your perfect righteousness and Your deep, deep compassions that fail not. We bless Your name above all others. And pray, Father, that we might sow with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with loving kindness, break up the fallow ground and seek You, Lord Jesus, until You come to reign righteousness on the earth. We love You, Father. We pray You would teach us to love like You. In Jesus' name, Amen.